0: Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Soprano. This is the fifth anniversary edition of the Tartan Talks podcast. Wow. Our podcast has made it to 60 episodes, and our guest is somebody who we believe to be the youngest guest in the series. Joining us is Jeff Danner of Richardson Danner Golf Course Architects. Jeff is under 40, which is very young in golf course architecture years. And he's going to describe how he was able to get his name on a golf course architecture firm so early in his career. And he's also going to discuss various design philosophies, especially those catered to attracting younger golfers. But before we get going with Jeff, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker has been with us nearly every step of the way, which is incredible. And we are so grateful for the support. In fact, we Bumped into Jerry Lemons and Todd Jenkins of Better Billy Bunker at the Keepers of the Green Golf Outing in Dublin, Ohio. Earlier this summer, it was great to see Jerry and Todd and catch up with them. Their business is just a tremendous success story. And we're so grateful, again, to have them supporting this podcast. And they do a ton for the American Society of Golf Course Architects. And they also do a ton for golf course superintendents. So we're honored to have them on board. And we were honored that Jeff was able to take so much time to join us. Well, Jeff, thanks for joining the podcast. It's awesome to have you on Tartan Talks. And the first thing uh, we wanted to get into here is so you graduated from the University of Illinois in Champaign, Urbana, in 2005. Your name is now on a golf course architecture firm. How did you reach this point so soon in your career?
1: Well, thanks for having me, Guy. I would say definitely persistence, passion. And uh, while well, finding somebody who's willing to, to give you the opportunity, quite frankly, I do believe that you kind of create your own luck. And this is a goal that I've had, I would say, ever since I decided I wanted to become a golf course architect. Now, wasn't without a little bit of a, uh, a detour. I, I had the opportunity to go work for a signature name for a few years. You know, I had a great opportunity to go work with Greg Norman for a few years, but it's one of those itches that, you know, never went away. So... My goal kind of all along was maybe I could do something like this by the time I was 40. So I suppose I'm ahead of that goal.
0: For our listeners that aren't familiar, your partner is Forrest Richardson. He's the president of the American Society of Golf Course Architects. He's one of the most passionate people you'll, you'll ever meet and one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. We bumped into him a few weeks ago down at Dublin, Ohio at the Keepers of the Green Outing. And how, how does somebody like you meet somebody like Forrest and how do you form a partnership in an industry where it's so competitive sometimes amongst each other? Well,
1: it's kind of a long story, but I can I can give you as much as I can without taking up too much time. But when I was in college, um, I had an opportunity to sort of design my own independent study studio for landscape architecture, and I wanted to do it on sustainable golf course architecture. And part of the requirements to get approval from the department was You know, you had to design a project, come up with a panel of judges to judge that project, but you also had to have your sources and things that you were citing along the way on how you got the information and how you arrived at the end goal. And at the time, there really wasn't a whole lot of material to draw from as far as golf course architecture. Not that I could find anyway. I mean, I'm sure people who were ingrained in the industry had some really good um, suggestions, but I didn't know how to get in touch with those people. So what I found were, were a couple of books, and one of them was uh, Herdson's book on on construction and design, and then uh, Forrest's book, Routing the Golf Course, which, which really got me started and trying to figure out how a golf course should be laid out on a piece of land and what sort of things needed to be considered along the way. So that was the first time I'd seen or heard – Forrest's name, um, and that would have been back in 2004. Now, a few years later, um, I was lucky enough to get a job with Bob Lohman outside of Chicago, and we went to the golf industry show when they still held it in Anaheim, and that was in 2007. And Forrest's booth was a couple down from ours, and I had just bought his other book about hazards, uh, bunkers, pits, and other hazards. So Um, I worked up the nerve to go down there and ask him if he could sign it, and he graciously did so. And I met him and Valerie, and and we shared a few words, and then that was it for a couple years. You know, I really had, you know, no other encounters with him. Up until a couple years ago, we both ended up sitting on a panel discussion at the Golf Course Builders Association of America um, at the Breakers in West Palm Beach, And um, I remember feeling like it was kind of odd that he was all the way in Florida. I hadn't heard his name much in Florida, but at that time I was a candidate for membership in the ASGCA, and he was very kind to me and very humorous, as as his typical nature is. And um, we got along great. So that that was another kind of chance but but really good encounter. And then um, a few years ago when the ASGCA meeting was, In Scottsdale, which was my first meeting, by the way, we ended up sitting next to each other at dinner and we really started hitting it off. And um, at that point in time, I really felt compelled to thank him for his writing and all that he'd done for young guys like me who were coming up because, you know, without books like his routing the golf course and bunkers, pits and other hazards, there's not a lot of other outlets for young people coming up in the profession to learn the basics. So I extended my gratitude to him and again he was very gracious and kind and, and we had a really good conversation. So fast forward again a few years later out to lunch with a mutual friend in the industry and at that point in time I was starting to think maybe it's time to revisit this goal that I had to potentially partner with somebody or go off on my own or or something to that effect, and he said, you know, you really ought to talk to Forrest Richardson. He's got a lot going on. He's he's probably up for something like this, and he's a friend of mine, so, you know, he kind of talks to me about these things as well. So I called Forrest, and we had that initial conversation, and then one thing led to another, and all of a sudden, here we are. Now, we both wished it could have happened a little bit sooner, but COVID, of course, um, a little bit of a damper on the the travel to meet each other and have those meetings and whatnot. So a lot of stuff was done over zoom and and Skype and and video calls and stuff like that. But um, yeah, it's kind of just a, a, a long steady process you could say. So I like to tell people that he doesn't realize it, but Forrest has really been there with me almost the entire time that I've been in golf course architecture. So it's in an indirect way, but, Still, it's, it's meant a lot to me over the years.
0: That's quite a story, and I'm sure Forrest is listening, so I just want to put out, out there that both those books you mentioned are sitting here in our golf course industry bookshelf right behind me in this office. So uh, he's had an impact on us too. You entered the profession at a really difficult time, if you think about it. I mean, you graduate from school in 2005, and everybody knows what happened. Three years later, what was the challenge of trying to establish yourself in an industry that was contracting right around the time you were coming out of school.
1: Well, it's interesting and I'll have to redact some names from this story just to protect the innocent. But, um, you know, when I was coming out of college, I started calling architects to find out who might be hiring, um, how I might go about, you know, getting a job. And, you know, quite frankly, a, a couple big names, uh, one in particular told me pick a different profession. It's not worth it. It's 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 too competitive. It's not a good idea. And that was really kind of disheartening for me. But I didn't give up. Um, I kept calling people. But guys like Ray Hearn and especially Rick Jacobson were kind enough to give me the enc- encouragement that I needed at that point in time to keep keep kind of pursuing it. And Rick especially was nice enough to sit down with me and sort of give me a very honest. Appraisal of what I needed to do, and he said, you know, you should really look into doing uh, maintenance, getting on a maintenance crew, or getting on a construction crew, and, and cutting your teeth that way because it'll give you experience that's invaluable. So, so that's what I did um, for a summer. But then, when I did graduate, I was probably two or three days away from accepting a job in San Diego where I would have been doing, you know, resort. Uh, and hospitality design which you know is is fun in its own right but there were just no golf course architecture jobs out there so I was getting ready to accept that offer and then my advisor from the University of Illinois called me and said hey something just came across my desk I think you should take a look at it and it it ended up being a job posting for um, what was then called Lohman Golf Designs Bob Lohman and Todd Quitnow was his senior designer back then, so I pursued it. Bob ended up hiring me, and I worked for Bob for about three years, and, yep, the timeline lines up about perfectly. 2008, 2009 rolled around, and things got really rough, and unfortunately, you know, Bob had to let me go, and um, he was very gracious about it. In fact, during that meeting, he gave me a job posting that was posted at the ASGCA newsletter, and it was for golf plan he said, you should call these guys. I know you want to do international golf course design. I can't keep you on right now, but I'll do whatever I can to help you. And um, I'm, I'm forever grateful for that because a few months later it did materialize and I ended up working with golf plan for about seven years. So yeah, it was, it was not easy in the beginning and uh, you know, a lot of bumps in the road, but I mean, it just kind of goes to show you if you're persistent and you want it bad enough and you have a little bit of luck along the way, you can make it happen. So um, yeah, it was not easy in the beginning.
0: What was it about golf course architecture and the golf business that made you want it bad enough, Jeff?
1: I just kind of felt like it was something that was always in my blood. I mean, I wasn't always a golfer, but, and I don't come from a golfing family. I mean, my parents play casually and they're not, you know, they're what you would call maybe weekend hackers, you know, no offense, mom and dad, but they don't play that often, but they felt like it'd be a good idea to take me out one day. And I guess the first time that I played, I said, I hated this stupid game and I'm never playing again. But for whatever reason, I gave it another chance. And from that point on, it was all I ever wanted to do. And I didn't always have a ride to the golf course, so I couldn't always go play golf, but what I did have was a nice big backyard and a handful of utility flags and a wiffle ball that I could go around and just, you know, put together endless routings and and configurations of my backyard into a golf course that I could play with a wiffle ball. It wasn't always a wiffle ball, but after a broken window, I had no choice but to make the switch, so... It just kind of got ingrained in me in that way and said casually, this is what I want to do. But it never really got serious until college came around and it was like, okay, you have to pick a major. So what do I have to do to become a golf course architect? Well, my research told me that um, landscape architecture was kind of the most common and appropriate path. So that's what I pursued.
0: Kind of interesting. So you're you're 22, 23, 24 years old and having to approach people that are old enough to be your father or even grandfather for jobs and work opportunities. And then you get in your thirties and you're you're competing against the same generation of architects. Has it been intimidating being the the young person in the business at all, Jeff?
1: It's not really anything I ever thought that hard about in the beginning, because in the beginning I was just trying to be a sponge Mm -hmm. and learn as much as I could, um, to kind of prepare myself for what I hope to be a long career in the business. But, um, it never really hit me that I might be on the young side until, you know, I was working with golf plan and and there was a lot of projects in Asia and, you know, I was fortunate enough to go on a few trips over there early on. And I, I would, I would be told that how, how young he looks and I come to find out that that's kind of a big deal in Asia. Um, there's a lot more respect for your elders and the, the balding and the gray hair and everything. So, um, you know, when people started making comments about how young I was, that's when it kind of hit me that like, oh, I'm probably one of the younger people around doing this. That might have been a little bit intimidating. But later on, I would say from my mid 30s to now, I stopped really being kind of intimidated. And because I realized that, you know, I have a lot of good ideas, at least I think I do, and um, a lot to offer to the clients and everything. So um, and I'm always up for a, a good battle. You know, I've been in design competitions and stood up in front of city councils and mayors and stuff, and had to present concepts and answer questions and everything. And you know, I'm not I'm not the most extroverted person in the world. And in fact, I would keep to myself most of the time. But in those types of arenas where you're public speaking or where you have to, you know, go up there and, and be animated and and uh, convincing and everything, I seemed to get up for it. And um, I think it was kind of a combination of the, uh, the adrenaline rush and the passion that I have for golf course architecture just kind of carried me through almost like tunnel vision. You know, you, you get so focused on what you're doing and you just kind of fly through it. I, I don't think I'm really that intimidated anymore. I think I, I still do run into situations where People say you're young, but to me, it's not a big deal because I'm just going to continue to get older, so I might as well take it as a compliment while I still can.
0: You mentioned Asia. Where has this profession taken you in the last decade and a half?
1: Oh, all over. Most places in Europe, I've been to Korea several times, Vietnam several times, India more than several times. I've been to Saudi Arabia, Russia. I think I already said Europe, but um, I, I did a, a neat project with Kevin Ramsey in Turkey on the Black Sea a couple of years ago. Have not been to Africa yet. Uh, been to Argentina, other parts of South America, really all over. I mean, it's I've visited 30, 30 countries, probably worked in more, but haven't, haven't been there to see the work or, or the work hasn't been carried out or whatever. But Some interesting places for sure. I mean, as as an American inside your American bubble, places like Russia and Saudi Arabia can raise a little bit of an eyebrow, but once you get there, you realize that everybody around the world at their core is the same stuff that you see on TV and the stuff that you see on the news is not always real life. I mean, it is real life, but it's not, it's not the, the norm through the rest of the world. I mean, I would tell my parents that I'm going to these different places. And, you know, sometimes I would say, wow, well, you're going there, you better be careful. And it's like, well, yeah, but I think you're saying that because uh, of what you saw on the news, not because there's personal experience there or whatever. So I've I've never really had an issue anywhere that I've gone. And it's always been enriching and, and interesting everywhere I go.
0: How much has the industry changed in the last decade and a half, and what type of assignments and opportunities do you think there'll be for architects of your generation moving forward here?
1: I think technology is going to continue to grow at an exponential rate. And I think I'm kind of a, I don't want to say I'm unique, but my generation, what what I would call the old millennials, I mean, I think I, I just barely fit into that millennial category. I talk to people my age and we can all remember a time when we didn't have a cell phone in our pocket and you had to go pick up, you know, pick up the phone on the wall and dial it or whatever. And I've, I've had this conversation with friends and, you know, we, we've literally witnessed ourselves kind of being reprogrammed by these cell phones that we keep in our pockets. Um, we can remember a time when we weren't so scatterbrained all the time and that we could actually focus on one particular thing. But I don't think that's going to change. I think the technology is just going to continue to evolve and and people are going to continue to evolve. So when it comes to golf course architecture, that's also going to have to evolve in a way that helps keep people interested and keep their attention. I mean, we always talk about designing for fun and variety in a golf course. So if you have too many mundane holes in a row, people start to get bored or lose interest. I think that's going to be... Uh, even more so going forward. So I think we have to account for that and, um, you know, continue to plan for it and make sure we're doing things that hold people's interest. And and whether that's technology in the clubhouse or technology in the golf cart with GPS or a big part of it's how the golf course looks. I mean, the golf holes have to be interesting and different and, and engaging. So we just have to be, more conscious of that than ever because I believe people's attention spans are getting smaller and smaller the the further on we go.
0: When you're working on course plans, do you take into consideration the fact that the golfers you're designing the course for might be spending as much time on their phone out there as they are experiencing the course? Do you do you think about how the consumer behaves when the, they're on these landscapes you're working with?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I guess as kind of a, a side interest or, or focus in golf course architecture, and it's totally related, you think about, you know, principles of environmental psychology and how different uh, landforms and features and textures and colors and, and just how the overall experience affects people's mental state and state of mind. And I, I don't think we're ever going to be able to get to a point where we can you know, indirectly force people to put the cell phone down, but, um, you know, maybe we can hold their interest a little bit longer than we normally could with than the cell phone. So I like to to focus on the principles that contribute to people's mental health and well-being, their physical well-being, and just the the overall, um, you know, sort of physical and mental aspects that that contribute to wellness and good health. I mean, we just came out of a a pandemic, and I think one thing that, you know, people haven't talked about enough through this whole thing is, you know, how much better off we would have been had um, health and wellness been promoted more throughout the entire process. I mean, we keep talking about who's susceptible with, with what health issues and whatnot, But the best defense against getting the virus is already being in very good health. I mean, that's what we're finding is that people who are in better health tend to do a lot better with these types of things. And I don't think that's being talked about enough. I mean, as Americans, we're, you know, we're free to do whatever we want and we're free to put whatever we want in our bodies, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the best thing. I think we should be promoting the physical activity of golfing and, you know, the the mental stimulation and engagement that golfing has to offer because those types of things contribute to long-term health and well-being. You know, that's the best defense and the, the best way to prepare yourself for a long and happy life.
0: Well, I'm a health and wellness advocate and I 100% agree with all that. And I guess my follow-up question here is how do you design, route, think about a golf course as a wellness center as much as a actual playing landscape? Are there things you can do to incorporate wellness into the golf course with your designs beyond just walking from tees to greens?
1: Well, I mean, certainly walkability is paramount. I mean, you want people to have the physical activity, but beyond that, I, I think you want to give them plenty of variety, not necessarily physical challenge, but variety of, of slopes and lies and uphill and downhill and, and side hill and just things that, you know, might engage slightly different groupings of muscles than you would if you were just, you know, walking a straight line from, from tea to green or whatever. And then think about, you know, primitive man and, you know, how, when, you know, when you're in the savanna out there hunting and you, you feel, you feel safer when you're up high on a mountain because from there you can see any potential predators. And, uh, And it gives you this feeling of of confidence and exhilaration, whereas if you're sort of down in a valley, um, you don't necessarily have the visibility to everything, and and somebody could be watching you from from up high. There's these very, very primitive sort of basic things that we don't think about every day that do affect our mood and how we feel. I mean, if you think about it, uh, how do you feel standing up on the 7th tee at Pebble Beach? You know, you're you're high above everything you can see the whole green i mean it's exhilarating right i mean that's uh that's a perfect example of of how you know the way a golf course is is laid out and routed how that affects your your emotions and your and your mental state of mind
0: i'm around the same age as you jeff what will be different about the generation of golfers coming along than previous generations have you done any uh, discussions with them, focus groups, that type of thing. What's going to be uh, different about the the millennial and Gen Z golfer than the the Gen X and baby boomer golfer, from what you can tell?
1: Well, I don't I don't think it's any secret that people in the younger generations have less time on their hands. I think you know after nine eleven, everybody started to realize you know that they needed to be more family oriented and that time is precious and you know something like that could again could happen at any time so you're not necessarily as likely to go out and spend you know five or six hours god forbid six hours on a golf course um, away from your families and you know there's also so many other activities out there to enjoy and like i said before our attention spans Are getting a little bit smaller so the the kids these days they have full you know full schedules of different activities that they're doing and if you think about it golf would occupy a lot of that if that's all they were doing which to me is fine because i'm a golfer but you know if you have all these other interests that you're trying to balance um you know golf could certainly end up you know taking up a lot more time than you want it to So I think we just have to be cognizant of that. And we do need to cater to the idea that a father, rather than leaving his family for five hours to go to the golf course, he's probably going to want to take his family with him. So it's important for these clubs to uh, provide for inclusivity and make everybody feel welcome. It can't just be, you know, the old boys club anymore. There's got to be you know, something. If they're not golfing, there's got to be something fun for the kids to do or for the the wife to do, so that everybody can go to the club together, and sort of be close and and be able to spend time with each other. So, um, I mean, that could that could be a whole other conversation on what clubs should include. But as far as the golf is concerned, I think you know, short courses and. And uh, or routings on an 18-hole course that give you the option to cut over and, and turn it into sort of a three-hole, six-hole, nine-hole loop as opposed to being expected to play 18 holes or whatever. I, I think we have to have more flexibility in the realm of time so that we can make sure that that fits people's crazy schedules that they have these days. That's that's kind of the main thing. And then obviously technology plays a role. So if there's some way for clubs to incorporate an app on the phone. I know they have these, um, there's there's companies out there who set up cameras on a part three and uh, you can place a bet or you can win a prize. If you get a hole in one or closest to the pin, I think, I think there's kind of endless opportunities for certain types of fun gaming, not necessarily gambling, but you know, ways to play different games on the golf course that, would have people engaged not only in the golf course, but on their phones as well, which seems to be uh, unavoidable these days anyway. So you might as well figure out a way to use it to enhance the experience.
0: I'm reading a terrific book right now called Z Economy about how Gen Z is going to change the future of business and what owners and operators and managers can do about it. And one of the themes of the book is that environmentalism and inclusivity means a ton to the generations coming along. What do those two terms mean to you as a golf course architect, and what can you do to promote those two things at a golf facility?
1: To be honest, mm-hmm. there's so much ingrained into my thinking, and I would say other people in my generation, I think it's ingrained in their thinking, that it's not really an option. It's it's, it's a necessity these days. It has nothing to do with with politics or, or being woke or, or canceling something that is no longer relevant. It's, it's just the way the world is moving. I mean, environmentalism, I think it's undeniable that, you know, things around us are, are sort of evolving and, and changing constantly. And there's a lot of concerns around, you know, increased occurrences of fires and the hurricanes in Florida are coming along more frequently things are happening almost on a regular basis. And and some of them are are quite devastating. So I think everybody's sort of of this mindset that, you know, we have to plan better. Um, We have to better account for things that could happen moving forward. And we just have to be smart about the way we plan things. I mean, you know, don't uh, build a building over an area that's limestone and could potentially be a sinkhole. I mean, don't put Buildings in a floodplain i mean there's 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 a lot of very obvious things that I think people got away with a long time ago because they they didn't think the threat was that serious but or the outlook wasn't that serious. but now that things are evolving, it, you know I, I looked at a project where I was looking at the flood maps for it, and the one hundred year floodplain line changed big time since the last time uh, anyone you know, built the course. I mean, they, they have to go back and update these things. And all of a sudden, half the golf hole that I'm looking at is in that floodplain. No wonder it stays wet all the time. No wonder it's underwater. But, I mean, they didn't know that back then because their data was telling them that the risk tolerance was, you, you know, the, the risk level was very low. But now this golf course is receiving these storms that would be considered 100-year storms almost on a regular basis. So they're they're fighting an uphill battle, and they're trying to figure out what to do to alleviate these these flood concerns because they don't have a lot of wiggle room. So I think we just have to continue to try to plan um, for things to to get worse and try to be smart about what we're doing. Now, as as it relates to inclusivity, to me that's a very basic concept. I mean, it's it's how you treat people. Do you make them feel welcome at your club or? You know, do you make them feel like an outsider? I mean, it's it's pretty simple. Just treat treat people with respect and make them feel like they belong and don't turn them away. I, I was visiting a club the other day, and we were out on the patio, and I noticed it was families. It wasn't just old men after their golf round or before their golf round. I mean, there were kids running around. There were, you know, wives and spouses hanging out. I mean, everybody was there, and I, the member that I was playing with, I said, I said this is really refreshing to see is, is the club always like this. And he said no. He said this is fairly recent. And I said, "Well, how did how did you guys turn it around so quickly?" And he said, "Well, it really changed almost overnight." He said all they did was hire a new GM who was very much about inclusivity and welcoming people of all ages and races and backgrounds." And he said all of a sudden that mentality was instilled in the staff and that started to filter into the membership and all of a sudden everybody is accepting of one another and now everybody's smiling on the patio having a good time so i think it's infectious i mean if if you treat somebody well they're more likely to treat you well so it's it's a very basic principle but i think it starts at the top i think if, if clubs want to change, uh, they have to start instilling that mentality in their leadership and in their staff. and from there it just sort of spreads. I think that's how you can how you can change the culture.
0: Jeff, what can you do as a golf course architect on the physical landscape to make it more welcoming for all different types of players from different backgrounds?
1: Well, on the physical landscape, you know I think it's it's more to do with people's physical abilities. I mean, a golf course being kind of a, a natural, um, a natural thing doesn't doesn't discriminate really against anybody except people who might be physically incapable of navigating that type of landscape. So I think we have to look at again um, walkability, and if not, you know we have to be very thoughtful of our cart paths. We have to make sure safety is a top priority. Um, on all projects and make sure there's an opportunity for everybody to kind of, you know, feel a sense of accomplishment or, or fulfillment as they're playing. I mean, I start to think about, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs when I think about an overall golf facility and the most basic principle being, you know, food, water, warmth, and, and rest. Most clubs sort of have that in the beginning But I can tell you a a great example of how something so basic can change a facility. We're we're working with a client up in Seattle. And when he bought the course, the first thing he did was give the food and beverage a makeover. He hasn't done anything to the golf course yet. He's planning to, but the first thing he did was make over the food and beverage. And I can't tell you how many people we saw smiling in that dining room. I was told that before that it, You know, the food and beverage operation was more of a, almost like a hole-in-the-wall kind of pub atmosphere, but now it's where people come to dine out, even if they're not playing golf, and people were coming up to our table and thanking him for everything he's done to the club, and all he's done so far is really change the menu and, and put, you know, fresh coats of paint on the wall, and it made a very huge difference, so that's an example of how something so basic can really change a place, but you get into other things on that pyramid you know you have the the safety needs people have to feel safe at your facility so you know you got to create whether it's in the building built environment or on the golf course environment you have to give people a sense of security and safety i mean location 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 people talk about it all the time and 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 you do end up with golf courses in some places that don't necessarily contextually feel safe but there's a lot of things you can do inside the golf course to make people feel safe, such as, you know, tree buffering or, or you know, making sure there's uh, proper security. If you're, a, if you're a guest at that facility, there's no reason why you should not feel safe. And then if you move kind of up the line, this is where I really think the, the primary part or the meat of inclusivity rests, and that's in, you know, sense of belonging self-esteem needs. People People want relationships, they want friends, and they also want to feel accomplished and, and prestigious in some way. So if you can create an atmosphere where people feel uh, welcome to interact and to, to talk to each other and, and make friends and, and everybody's very approachable, I think that goes a long way. And then if you can, you know, program the facility to have different tournaments and events that accommodate not just the better players, but, you know, different skill levels. And a lot of clubs do this already with, you know, the various flights that they have for a tournament. But um, if you can create situations where people have an opportunity to feel a sense of accomplishment by winning something or achieving something, then I think that goes a long way as well. And then I think if, if you can give them an opportunity to, participate in something that makes a difference, then they feel a sense of fulfillment and accomplishment as well. So if your club is hosting charity events or, or doing food drives or or giving people who frequent the facility an opportunity to make a difference in their community, I think that adds to the experience as well. You know, it's it's very it's very basic stuff that we're talking about. There's no there's no magic bullet, but there's, there's ways to design around that stuff, and it's not always just like what you put as a physical feature on the golf course, but how you program the space and how you manage it and how you use it, that can make a difference. Um, what we can do as golf course architects is, is make sure that the risk uh, against safety is mitigated as much as possible, the experience is engaging and mentally stimulating as possible, and that people have the opportunity to have a great time that they wouldn't find anywhere else. I, I hate to make it sound so basic, but <laughs> it, it really is quite simple if you break it down that way.
0: Jeff, going back to the environment, what's the example of an environmentally sensitive site that you've worked on and how are you able to overcome that challenge and what type of environmental challenges do you foresee you and your colleagues having here in, into the future? Well,
1: to be honest, the challenge on golf projects That I've worked on has rarely had to do with the golf course itself. It usually has more to do with what's coming up around the golf course, whether it's villas or a hotel or or residential. That seems to be the sticking point on most projects. I mean, I guess as an example, the projects um, we did at Golf Plan in Turkey, in a way that was environmentally sensitive, but uh, THE MUNICIPALITY WAS MOTIVATED TO DO THIS PROJECT BECAUSE THEY WERE PROMOTING HEALTH AND WELLNESS IN THEIR COMMUNITY, THAT THEY PUSHED THE BOUNDARIES A LITTLE BIT. I MEAN, THEY, they DREDGED AND FILLED ENOUGH SPACE TO PUT AN ENTIRE GOLF COURSE IN THE BLACK SEA. BUT THEY WERE they're were VERY THOUGHTFUL ABOUT IT. YOU KNOW, THEY DID EVERYTHING THAT THEY NEEDED TO DO TO DO IT RIGHT. AND FROM WHAT I UNDERSTAND, it's IT'S BEEN VERY SUCCESSFUL. Now, I I do have a project in Portugal that sort of been on the back burner for a while, having nothing to do with the golf course, but, uh, again, the built environment coming up around it. The the golf course has been been approved. They can start construction on it whenever they want, but the sticking point with the municipality there is, you know, what impact are the villas have on the overall landscape? So they're trying to get their building permits sorted out, uh, first and foremost, so I think I think in a lot of cases, golf gets a bad rap in that realm. But golf course can be beneficial to the environment. In most cases, it is. I mean, I don't I don't see enough in the news about how golf courses help mitigate flood risks or prevent you know community its surrounding community from flooding or or the benefits that it has for you know bringing birds and different wildlife back to a site that probably previously hadn't seen that type of wildlife action in years i mean you, you don't read enough about that in my experience every situation where there's been an environmental issue on the on a golf project it's had more to do with the contextual surroundings and what's being planned there as opposed to the golf course
0: Jeff, last thing here, the both of us have incredible passion for this and we both certainly hope to be here in twenty years still involved in the golf industry. What do you think we'll be talking about in twenty forty one when we record Tartan Talks number three hundred together?
1: <laughs> that's that's a tough one. I mean it's it's really it's really difficult to predict the future. I mean maybe we'll maybe we'll be talking about putting a golf course on Mars or something like that. I don't know you know, maybe, maybe a, a place like, um, I mean, there's already golf courses being built in, in Africa, but we'll consider that maybe one of the final frontiers. I mean, there's, there's some concentrated areas of South America where there's, um, a lot of golf being built, but that's, that's another place as well. I mean, Asia is has been cranking for years and it's probably going to continue to do so for a while. Um, europe has always been pretty steady and kind of mirrored what's going on in in the u.s the middle east right now is actually pretty hot Uh, no pun intended there but there's a lot going on over there as well and you know i don't know how long that'll go on but a lot of these mega projects that are being built i mean it's gonna it's gonna take at least 20 years probably for a lot of them to get built out and then it'll be really interesting to see what happens after that you know whether whether there'll be a shift to municipal golf or, or what the what the model's going to be. I think it'll be interesting. I don't know that we'll be talking about a lot of new builds in the U.S. Um, for a very long time or, or ever, quite frankly, but that's just the way it is. So, I mean, we'll probably, you know, continue to talk about how technology is affecting golf, and maybe we'll look back at 2021 and, in this period, as as a turning point. I mean, things things like 9/11 and then the pandemic, you know, have a tendency to really cause society to pause and sort of reprioritize things. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, how the how the world's changed 10, 20 years after after we've all sort of gone through this pandemic, because you're already seeing people's People's minds are are kind of changing on on different topics, and you know, right now it's it's kind of crazy. Everybody's like, everybody's getting out of jail. I mean, it's uh, um, there's a lot of weird stuff going on in the world right now. So it'll be an interesting conversation, but it's it's really it's really hard for me to say or predict what exactly we'll be talking about. Um, You know, maybe something else will happen between now and then that you know, causes people to shift or or change their minds. But I have a feeling uh, the environmental aspect will be in that conversation because um, I think it's always going to be. And we're probably going to have new information and and different information than we have now, and and we'll be having to figure out how to adjust to it. So I I would look forward to that conversation, but I have trouble predicting exactly what it will be that we're talking about.
0: Well, Jeff, this was a lot of fun, and what terrific insight and thinking you provided on the podcast, and I'm sure we'll be talking to each other uh, frequently between now and 2041, and when we do get to 2041, I guess we'll be two of the uh, the older people in the business by that time, but no, seriously, this is this is a lot of fun, and uh, you know, congrats on forming the partnership with Forrest, and congrats on everything you've achieved, and I'm sure we'll talk again soon. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.